welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Michael Johnston. Today I'm joined by our adjunct fellow Stephanie Martin and also Dr Kevin Knight from New Zealand Graduate School of Education. Now Kevin I would say is New Zealand's greatest teacher education guru and he provided a lot of inspiration to Stephanie and myself who have just completed a report on teacher education. So it's really wonderful to have you with us today, Kevin. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Michael. Perhaps a, a good place to start is um, at the start of the, the graduate school. How did you decide, why did you decide to start a, a teacher education institution? Well, this goes back 27 years now. My fellow founder, Lois Chick, and I were working together at what was then called a College of Education. And the thing that spurred us into setting up our own organisation was the awareness that the College of Education we worked at was graduating people who were not ready to teach, that we would sit there, watch them receive their diplomas, and we knew from our contact with them that they may have finished a qualification, but they, they weren't ready to go, and we felt that was wrong. Yeah. So when we set up our own organisation, the, the fundamental philosophy that we put there right at the start and we've stuck to ever since is that no one leaves our programme unless they're job ready, able to teach in any New Zealand classroom on the day they leave. Right. And so going back 27 years, the, the College of Education, that would be what we would know as, as a teacher's college, is that right? So Yes, it was a traditional teacher's college. Of course, over the years to follow, they all merged with their local universities. Yes. And they became the either faculties of education or colleges of education of the universities. Yes. Um, they, they continue to be a major provider of teachers to New Zealand schools. Yes. Yeah. We, in in the research for the report, we we found ninety percent of primary and secondary teachers come through universities. So you are a right. a minority uh, as an independent provider. You're in a minority. How, how do you find that in in an environment dominated by universities? Does that have challenges for your your operation? Well, this takes us back twenty seven years, and we naively thought that. If we did it better, then the universities would want to copy what we do and the country would be the beneficiary, that better teachers would be available and um, the standard of teaching and teacher education would lift. So that was our naive belief all those years ago. In fact, we've been largely ignored by the main providers, mm. so they're not so much a threat because they do their programs, we do ours. Yes. And we operate in, in isolation from them. And and you don't really want for for uh, students coming along and wanting to train with you? Oh, we would be pleased to have more people coming along. Um, but our intention had always been to be a model for other providers, yes. for them to see that it was perfectly possible to have a person job ready at the end of their initial teacher education. Going back 27 years ago, there was there was a start of a shift in thinking already taking place, and it was really accelerated by the universities. The thinking was that it's not possible to get a person 
job ready at the end of their teacher training. In fact, that you needed to look at the first two years of a teaching career as part of training. And that thought was being mooted back in those years, those early years. And now it's widely accepted amongst teachers and teacher education providers that it's not possible and it's utterly and completely, totally wrong. Mm. It's perfectly possible to have a person job ready and that the first two years of a career should simply be an induction phase, not part of their actual training. Right. And I think, you know, the, the, your point that teachers are not job ready really accords with the research that we did for the report. And I think even after the two years of provisional certification, I, I think many teachers are not still not job ready because of flaws in the way that the mentoring system hmm. works. Uh, it, it, it seemed that, you know, the, there's a shortage of good mentors out there and it's very hit and miss whether a, a, a new teacher gets mentored well or not. Probably a good place to bring Stephanie in, actually, uh, who is herself a primary school teacher. And Stephanie, you did a... a you did your training, what, in about 2015 or so at, at um, a university? Yeah, so that was at the um, University of Auckland. We did a mid-year to mid-year degree, which allowed them to make the most of the summer semester as well. So it was mid-2015 to mid-2016 that I did my study, and that was a Master of Teaching. And without wanting to uh, single out Auckland University, because I'm sure that it's more or less the same as most of the others. Did you feel job ready at the end of your program? No. <laughs> what, no, what, what, certainly not. What were the, the things that were lacking as far as you were concerned? I think primarily the issue really was that I felt that the thing that had been cut the most significantly to make room for other priorities was the content itself. So was the teaching of how to deliver content and this might sound familiar to you Kevin because I know that that's something that you prioritize sort of the opposite way around we got a very strong focus on other priorities um, I would say social justice priorities which consistent with the themes that we found in our report and yeah this thing that seemed to fall down in the wake of that was the content itself so when I entered into my first teaching role I felt very underprepared to actually do the day-to-day classroom teaching, the maths groups and the reading groups and things like this. Um, we had our experiences while we were on practica, obviously, but they were specific to the classrooms that we were in for that time. And so if, like, I would be representative of many teachers that I went into a classroom that was of a different year group than the groups that I'd been working with on my practica, and because we haven't hadn't had the general understanding provided to us of the content throughout the degree, I wasn't really able to easily extrapolate that knowledge. And so I sort of found myself having to start again with a new year group. So I would say that's a pretty <laughs> significant area that I think we need to look at. Right. And interesting to get Kevin's perspective on this. Of course, Kevin, I think most of your trainees are at primary level. Is that right? No, about half and half primary uh, and secondary. About half and half. I guess there's a particular challenge at primary level because primary teachers have to teach across the entire curriculum. Mm -hmm. We have specialisation at secondary level and in theory at least they're well prepared with knowledge in their 
their undergraduate degrees to, to teach in science or history or what, whatever it is. How do you handle that curriculum issue of, of having to prepare primary teachers to teach very widely? Right. The simple answer to that is our primary training program is longer. Right. That raises some eyebrows at times because people think if you're teaching at a secondary level, it's more advanced and there must be more complexity to it. But it's actually a simpler job. Our primary colleagues, as you pointed out, Michael, are teaching across a wide range of curriculum areas. And sometimes they are light in their knowledge of those areas. So we have to make sure that we put the curriculum input in there, give them lots of opportunities to teach in areas, learning areas that they're less familiar with so that they're able to do it. So our our primary program is typically 15 months long and our secondary program is typically 12. So right. simple answer is it's a longer program. You take a bit longer. And are, are, yes. you, are you selective about who you admit to the program? Uh, I mean, it, I, one of the things that came up in the, the writing of the report was earlier research, uh, some done under the auspices of the Royal Society, showing that primary school teachers in New Zealand have particular issues with mathematics and numeracy and and also science. And a lot of them don't know much in those areas and have a bit of a fear of it sometimes. Do you, so do you, are you careful about who you admit to your programs in, in that regard? We go through a selection process and we have declined people, particularly if they are weak in numeracy. We've certainly seen a decline in the, the numeracy skills, not so much literacy skills, in the people who apply to our programs. This is perhaps a reflection on what's happening out there in the school system. Yeah. Um, they come to us with a degree in something, our primary people. We are a graduate-only program. So if someone comes into our primary program, they may have a degree in history, and the last time they did any mathematics may have been year 12. Yeah. And in fact, their numeracy was learnt at primary school and it's a long time in the past and yeah. it's slipped away from their grasp somewhat. So yes, that is an issue for us. We certainly make sure that our people are capable of teaching in those fields and fill in knowledge holes that they have. But we do on occasions turn people down if those knowledge holes are too great. Right, I see. And in terms of the pedagogy that you uh, follow, both in terms of how you teach the teachers in training and also what you inculcate in them to pra in their own practice. Is there a particular philosophy or model of pedagogy that you follow? Or, or is it just much more pragmatic than that? It's, it's utterly pragmatic. We, if there's any mantra within our organisation is that they are there to cause learning. Yes. And, and we're quite relaxed about how they might cause learning um, so long as they are able to show that they have. Yes. There are, there are lots of teachers out there who are wedded to a particular philosophy or worldview and put children or young people through various learning activities in the day but can't point to what they've learned. Mm. Um, so we, we're not wedded to a philosophy we're committed to having people who will cause learning 
the, the phrase caused learning raised some eyebrows because it sounds controlling, but it absolutely isn't. Mm. All we are saying to our people is when they're in a class with young people, it's their job to ensure that learning takes place. Right. Um, we're not saying they should direct it. Um, if they can step back and ensure that learning is taking place, fantastic. Um, we, we're quite relaxed about that. I, I understand. And I actually really like the term. When I heard you use that phrase when we visited you in Christchurch, it actually lit me up because it gets to the heart of the matter, uh, I think. A, a teacher is there to cause learning. If they don't, why would they be there? Interestingly, Michael, not everyone shares your affection for the term. And I remember being at a meeting of teacher educators and using that term and being rounded on by a professor from a university who said it sounded like I was talking of Mr. Squeers from Nicholas Nickleby. Yes, so it, readers of Dickens will know that that was the mean and nasty schoolmaster from, from that story. Or, or she grand felt grind causing, or someone like that. Yes, <laughs> that causing learning was a horrible thing to do. Yes. Uh, but, it's not on our place, and I'm pleased to know that you're happy with the term. Well, I, I mean, I, I can think of nothing more frustrating for a child than not having learning caused. Mm. Uh, and I, I would tell me what you think about this, because I, I take your point that you don't much, you're not wedded to a particular approach as long as learning occurs and, and the teacher's causal in that. But it seems to me there is an inherent philosophy behind that, or at least you are at least implicitly taking a position in a, a much larger disagreement about the role of the teacher in the classroom. So we... we I was just thinking that. You, you go ahead, Steph, and, and tell me what you're thinking about that. Well, it just, it occurs to me as we're talking about this, that this seems to be one of the major philosophical shifts that's landed us in the situation that we're in. And Kevin, I'd be interested to hear how you've seen that change over the years it seems to me that one of the key changes that our has been that our idea has shifted about who's really responsible for learning and where the control really lies. And um, we've seen this gradual breakdown of the role of the teacher from being the person who causes learning to be to being the person who redistributes that power in the classroom and everyone in the classroom is equal and everyone has a shared responsibility for learning. That's sort of a phrase that I've heard used multiple times everyone's responsible for the learning in the classroom. It's mm. not just the teacher. I'd be really interested to hear what kinds of shifts you've seen in the last 27 years while you've been doing this. It's interesting because I went to a public lecture at our local university the other day. My brother pointed it out, and we, we often go off to things like that together. And the topic of the day was bullshitology. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, had, I had never heard the word before, and I went along and listened to a senior professor, um, described this field in the academic world called bullshitology, which is where academics identify the aspects of their field which could be classified as bullshit. And he presented this earnest lecture, deadly serious, uh, and kept using that word right throughout the hour. And I think what we're talking about here is one of those um, philosophies that would fit into that category as far as education is concerned. The idea that students should have agency over their learning and students should have a always have agency over their learning and always have agency over their behaviour is why we have a drop of learning in our education system. 
I love it when I go into a classroom and students are controlling what they're doing, but that only happens in the classrooms of extremely competent teachers who have taught them how to do that and have done that through a series of teacher-controlled activities that have gradually got them to that point. So we have lots of teachers out there who are wrapped up with this particular student agent agent philosophy and they are presiding over non-engagement kids mucking around doing nothing and the learning is not happening in their classes so Steph you're absolutely right and I'm pleased that you've raised this as a concern uh, it's it's a, a really important issue I Michael are you happy for me to sort of take that theme and just oh, go please, a, go please a little, do please do go a little <laughs> further with that I the truth is that over all the years that we've been operating, I, I've maybe it's age, I don't know. <laughs> it's I've become really critical of what I'm seeing out in schools. And it would be easy to get down with that. But what I do and what our organisation does is we seek out the exemplary practitioners. We find the teachers who are really excellent. We... Um, spend time to see why they are excellent. What is it that they're doing? How are they managing to cause learning so successfully in this class? How how do they have the, the great relationships that they have in this class? Why are the students so engaged in their learning activities? What What is it that they are doing that other teachers aren't doing? And if I have a bad day of seeing some weak teaching, I really just want to sit in the back of one of those classes and uplift myself because we have some utterly amazing teachers out there. Sadly, they are not as common as they used to be. Mm. But if we focus on how they manage groups of young people, how they forge meaningful relationships, how they assess what students need to learn, how they engage them in learning activities, then that becomes the basis of how we should teach others to be teachers. It's the work of exemplary teachers that guides our organisation. And I, I just wanted to acknowledge the exceptionally competent people that we have the privilege of seeing on occasions. Indeed. And, you know, I, I think at a risk of the kind of report that we've written is being seen to be critical of teachers themselves. And we've tried to be careful not to be because it, it does take a great deal of commitment and, and it's not a, a particularly well-remunerated career in terms of the amount of skill it takes to be a really top teacher. You've got to have a lot of different kinds of skills from social skills to knowledge to pedagogical expertise. So I think we really do need to acknowledge every teacher for their commitment and, and in fact, recognise that there are wonderful teachers out there. But as you said, I think we're now at the point where that's becoming less common, not because of, for any fault of the teachers themselves, but it comes back to the way that they're trained. And 27 years, well, that's nearly a, the length of a career. And so we've gone around... A, a full generation of teachers in that time and once the rot sets in as it were it, you end up with people coming out of school not as strong as in the previous generation and so the the potential for the next generation of teachers is thereby lowered 
Mm. And that must be something that keeps you up at night a bit. It's certainly something I worry about uh, as somebody who's concerned about the education system. Um, Absolutely. And, I mean, your listeners may be interested in what we prioritise in our programme with those thoughts in mind. I mean, the education sector worldwide is constantly being bombarded with different philosophies, different pedagogies, different ideas all very earnest and all very successful in the hands of very competent teachers. But in the hands of teachers who struggle with basic skills, then a lot of the new ideas that cross their desk or across their computer screen fail because they're missing some basic things that every teacher should be able to do. So in our program, we prioritise what we call the 16 essential skills of teaching. And They sit in the area of relationship building, building connections with students, in managing groups of students, behaviour management, and in the areas of assessment and planning. And we work to make sure that our interns, our teachers in training, or any teachers that we may work with in the professional learning context, get these skills fluent. Because once these skills are fluent, then they're far more able to embrace higher ideas, different ways of thinking, and they can get excited about different philosophies. Mm. So it's a real back to basics um, approach that we have. And I'm not talking about basic reading, basic math. I'm talking back to basics for teachers. Is yeah. How do you engage a group of young people? How do you talk to them? How do you make them feel affirmed as learners? How do you stop them mucking around and getting onto their work? How do you make them feel at the end of a day that they've achieved something? And how do you design learning activities which are exactly what they need tomorrow? It's 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 as basic as that. Yep. And if I was to think of, of an analogy, I I think of, of sports and every sports person knows that they have to be physically fit. They have to have an aerobic capacity, they have to have an anaerobic capacity, strength, flexibility. And when they're physically fit, then they're able to learn the skills that are specific for their sport. If they're a a pole vaulter, then amazing flexibility is what they need to do. If they're a rugby league player, they'll be in the, the gym adding extra bulk and needing that strength to break through tackles. Teaching also has something similar and it's the the essential skills that I just talked about. If a teacher is able to relate to students, able to manage groups of students and able to understand the learning that they need to learn tomorrow, then they will be able to embrace new ideas because the basic skills are fluent and successful. Yeah, this, this idea of fluency, I when I was looking through your your standards uh, and the grading system you use when the, your teacher educators are observing your teachers and training in the classroom and uh, assessing whether they've met a particular standard yet, uh, I, I really liked the way that the grading system went from maybe they've observed it, but it isn't yet fluent right up to oh. now it's fluent and consistent so we can yeah we, we can yeah. we can tick that one off and and actually again i think uh whether you know it or not that that idea of fluency 
is very concordant with the notion of automatization of cognitive functioning that that comes out of the science of learning that in order to build on something you need to get it to the point where you don't need to think about it anymore it's just as it were in your bones or it's, it just flows out of you because you've automatized it and we can think we can all think of how skills and knowledge that we learn is like that it starts off very effortful and difficult and it takes all of our cognitive capacity to be able to do it at all and with sufficient practice you can do it without thinking about it i well remember the very first driving lesson i had when i reached the right age with my father and he probably took me a kilometer down the road and i was a pool of sweat not knowing whether i was in gear when i needed to use the clutch and every driver in the world knows what automaticity really That's is right. and That's how right. after lots and lots of practice that you finally can can deal with those basic skills of driving which allows you to be alert to risk and danger to cope with um, someone jumping out in front of you by mistake or, or a driver on the wrong side of the road so we need to apply the same logic to teachers. There are things that they need to be able to do automatically with with really little thought, which allows them to put their mind on to understanding the, the children and young people who are in front of them, working out what it is that they need tomorrow and engaging them in learning conversations that's really going to cause learning. Yeah. If I might just jump yeah, in there. Go, please go ahead, Steph. Another thing that really occurs to me is we're sort of talking about teachers from the outside, but if you think about it from the perspective of being the teacher themselves, it's a much more fulfilling experience, right? If you're able to do those things more automatically, then you're probably going to enjoy the job a lot more. You're going to get a lot more fulfillment out of it. And that seems to be something that would inevitably make for better teachers right if they're happy to be there if they're happy to be at school if they're fulfilled in what they're doing then they're going to be more engaged right it's going to be a better experience for everyone and I see a lot of that the flip side of that actually around me all the time is that sense of fulfillment I'm not sure <laughs> is really there because the job feels so burdensome now. And I think if a lot more of those things were more automatic then teachers would probably have a lot more job satisfaction. What's your experience of that been, Steph? I mean, you commented before that you didn't feel prepared for the classroom when you first graduated. You've been teaching for a few years now. Uh, how, how has it gone for you? Do you feel that you've got to this point where things are pretty fluent for you now? And A lot more so, yes. definitely a lot more so, yes. Um, but I'm also aware that I... And now, because of my work with the initiative, I'm now working part-time. Um, and it's quite a different experience to be a part-time teacher than to be a full-time teacher because there's aspects that I'm not really having to spend my time on at the moment. Things like reporting and assessment and things like this aren't really a part of my role anymore. And those can be the things that enhance the workload, essentially, right. <laughs> the job. Yeah. So I do feel that I have a lot more energy to be in the classroom and to be engaged being part-time right yes well i mean for any teacher i'm sure that a classroom environment is fatiguing but uh, you've got a lot a lot to concentrate on even if you've got all those basics uh fluent uh, there's there's things that you do as a result of that that still require a lot of engagement it's a dynamic environment with with young young children absolutely michael steph raises a, a really important point 
And I just want to tie it into something that's happened recently. We've gone through industrial action by the teacher unions in New Zealand. And of course, the unions have every right to ensure that pay is appropriate and conditions are appropriate and um, place their case in front of the public and the, the government. But the, the, the industrial action had an intensity to it at the moment, which was more extreme than I'd seen before. And I actually think that it flows from what Steph is talking about, that teachers are feeling disempowered. They're mm -hmm. feeling um, dissatisfied with what they're able to do. The job, the job for some is getting them down. And the solution, I'm not, obviously pay is a good thing and um, conditions are good things. But for many teachers, the solution that they need to make them feel better about their jobs is to be more skillful, to get to the end of the day and to be able to point to something that they feel really proud about. I, I do think that the, the mood of the profession at the moment is is down because teachers are feeling overloaded and particularly stressed. Yeah. Well, again, if, if, if a skill isn't automatized, that's what it's like. It's stressful and, and difficult. Uh, mm. Sorry, go ahead, Steph. I think you wanted to say something. Oh, I was just going to say it actually occurred to me earlier while you were talking, Kevin, that something that we hear talked about, particularly around the pay negotiations, like what you were talking about, but it seems like it's been in the background as part of the conversation about teaching for quite a long time is the idea of the status of the profession. And I do wonder when that conversation goes on about the status of the profession, what role this idea of the teacher is the response, like having the responsibility for learning in the classroom, that's an empowering thing, right? If if you're told that actually you have responsibility for this, you, you are responsible for making learning happen, you can cause learning, that's an empowering message to receive. Mm. And I wonder how us having been, well, teaching in general, having sort of lost that sense of responsibility for learning feeds into that idea of the diminishing status of the profession. I wonder if those two things are connected. They absolutely are, Steph. And if you talk to parents, members of the public, and identify as a teacher, they're likely to say something like, well, I don't know how you do that, job. I couldn't spend my day with 30-10-year-olds. With oh, I really take my hat off to you. Good on you. They're, they're respectful of the fact that they're doing a difficult job. But they're not necessarily saying, wow, you know, you really are part of, of a highly significant profession. You know, we, our whole society um, values what you're adding to it. There's, it's almost a kind of sympathy for teachers, a bit of respect there, but, but not the status that, that it deserves. Yeah, I wonder if that is sometimes, I sometimes wonder if that is a bit of an antipodean thing that in countries like New Zealand and I would say Australia, we just for whatever reason haven't had the cultural respect for teachers that you might see in East Asia or Northern Europe. Yeah, I mean, I read things about how teachers are seen in those East Asian countries and I think, wow, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, maybe we... maybe a little bit too far sometimes. That, uh... <laughs> But the better the better we do our jobs, the more that we will be respected by the public. So when when we advocate for teachers, we should 
be looking for ways to make them more successful and accordingly better understood in the public eye. So what that means is that we need at least 10 graduate schools for education around well, the country. Well, that would be nice, yes. And, and you said... We'll close the... a couple of universities to make that happen, shall we, Michael? Well, the universities seem to be doing a good job of closing themselves at the moment. <laughs> they very nearly cancelled secondary teacher education at Victoria. Uh, mm. and, and I think one of the problems, one of the numerous problems with the university model is that at least with the teachers' colleges, for all their flaws, they had one job to do which was to train teachers, whereas universities have a plethora of degree programs and teaching is not seen as a prestigious thing by the universities particularly, and neither is it a cheap thing to run, especially at secondary level because you need all the, uh, the subject specialists. And so it must be a tempting thing for them just to stop doing it or stop resourcing it as well. But you said at the outset that your initial motivation was to persuade the universities to come on board with your way of doing things, which clearly hasn't happened. But an alternative <laughs> an alternative would be just to multiply yourself into, into different parts of New Zealand. Have you, have you considered opening a branch in Wellington, a branch in Auckland and elsewhere? The answer is yes. It's not as easy to do as it is to say. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people, young people in particular, will automatically transition to their local university because they're a recent graduate and it's an easy thing to click a few buttons on their screen and they're enrolled in the teacher training program. What we advise any young person wanting to be a teacher is to talk to lots of teachers and to identify what programs they consider as worthy. Yeah. Um, I had a young person in seeing me today who was weighing up our program and our local university's program. And and I said, of course, you need to weigh up the programs. And I wanted her to go off and talk to people. Mm. Do your homework. Talk to teachers. Talk to, if you know any principals, talk to them and say, who do you employ? And so if a principal is saying, we employ people off that program because they can do the job, I'd like to think that will influence the program choice. Indeed. And we're coming to the end of the time that we have, but I would very much like to see your model replicated. It's clearly built on firm foundations. And as our report shows, I think there are, there are numerous problems with the way we're training that 90% that come through universities at the moment. And look, Kevin... Thank you so much for joining us today and I really hope that you can find a way to make your model replicate itself or, or to, to replicate it throughout, throughout the country. Uh, more power to you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Steph. My pleasure. Thank you, Kevin. I've had to see you.